Good morning. Well, if you guys were here last week, uh, hopefully you remember me saying that we are going to be starting a new series in February on the miracles of Jesus and John. But before we get there in January, we're kind of doing a, a grab bag of sermon topics. And <clears throat> we're not going to be constrained by any particular series topic. And as I was uh, reflecting on, on things that I felt you know, the Spirit prompting me to talk about, um, something that kept coming to my mind is the Me Too movement. Uh, if you have been paying attention to what's been going on in our culture over the last three to four months, something very significant is going on. Um, I would expect and hope that most of you are aware of this uh, at this point, uh, but just in case you're not, I'll, I'll do a quick overview of what's going on. Back in October, there were a wave of allegations of sexual misconduct against uh, the Hollywood film producer Harvey Weinstein. Uh, for years, Harvey Weinstein was a very powerful man in Hollywood, and uh, he used his influence and power to make a lot of films, but he also used his influence and power uh, to try and manipulate women into sexual activity with him. And uh, all the evidence and testimonies that I have read suggest that he was a very persistent and coercive person um, who used a variety of shameful tactics to try and get what he wanted. Now, when these allegations came out, it actually led to this remarkable snowball effect, which is now known as the Weinstein effect, um, where other powerful men, especially men in the entertainment industry and in politics, uh, also found themselves accused of sexual misconduct. And it seems that some combination of factors in our society right now has led to this tipping point where victims of sexual harassment and assault feel um, the ability to speak out about what hap has happened to them. And our culture as a whole is saying enough is enough. And the reason what is happening is, is called the Me Too movement is because shortly after the allegations against Weinstein came out, uh, the actress Alyssa Milano wrote this tweet. This was on October 15th. And she wrote, uh, suggested by a friend, if all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. And she tweeted, Me Too. Well, by the end of the same day that Milano tweeted this, the hashtag MeToo was tweeted 200,000 times. And by the end of the next day, it had been tweeted 500,000 times. And those, those numbers are pretty impressive, but that's just Twitter. If we look at Facebook, within 24 hours after Alyssa Milano tweeted that, on Facebook, 4.7 million people had, had used that hashtag. Me too. And at this point, the hashtag has trended in at least 85 countries. It's remarkable. Now, those numbers are, are staggering. But they're even more staggering when we consider that undoubtedly there are many victims of sexual uh, assault and harassment who either, one, weren't aware of this campaign, so they never said me too, or, understandably so, were not comfortable saying me too. Right? Uh, so this is just a fraction. This represents just a fraction of the number of people who have had these experiences. So the number of women and men 
uh, who have experienced some form of sexual harassment or assault is just enormous. It's enormous. And it's impossible to comprehend the amount of pain that is represented by all those hashtags. Uh, the, the emotional pain, the physical pain, uh, the pain of fear that results from these things, uh, the pain in marriages that these events can cause. I'm sure if one were able to gather together all that pain collectively into one big ball, and any of one of us just partook of a, of a part of it, it would be enough to kill us on the spot. That's how much pain is represented there. And in the last several months, that pain and the widespread nature of that pain has been brought to our culture's attention in a, in a dramatic way. And I think we would be really remiss not to talk about it as the church. You know, whenever there is a collective cry of pain in our society, we should pay attention. And this is a big collective cry of pain. It's a cry that I have no doubt grieves God, and it should grieve us too. Now, I want to make a couple of quick disclaimers. Uh, I realize I'm taking on a massive topic this morning. 30 to 40, 40 minutes is not enough to uh, handle it uh, completely. And so I acknowledge right now what I'm going to say is going to be incomplete. I also acknowledge that I'm a man and my perspective is limited uh, by that. So I want to be upfront about that. Um, and I also recognize that this is a topic that can make us uncomfortable. Uh, and I, I want to assure everyone that I am not talking about this for the purpose of making anybody uncomfortable. However, uh, I think there are some issues that, even if they make us uncomfortable, are important to talk about. You know, I've heard a phrase uh, that says something to the extent of, uh, good preaching disturbs the comfortable and comforts the disturbed. Uh, and I think there's wisdom in that. And uh, so if you're uncomfortable, I hope it is not for an unnecessary reason. <laughs> My goal is not to make anyone uncomfortable for unnecessary reasons. But I am okay with us being uncomfortable for good reasons. Okay. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about the problem. And uh, then we're going to talk about how we in the church should be responding to the problem. And I'm going to bring in some scripture here and there. Uh, but I, I just want to add another disclaimer, which is that, you know, usually here at St. Paul's, we, re we read a passage of scripture and then we dig into it. Um, th this message, I didn't think, lent itself as well to doing that typical format. So I'm going, to be, I'm going to be guided by biblical principles and everything that I say, but we're not going to be working out of one particular text the way that we normally do. So guided by biblical principles, um, perhaps most of all, the basic principle of love your neighbor as yourself. So that is what is going to be behind, hopefully behind everything that I say this morning. So let's talk a little about the problem. In my research this week, I spent some time on the RAIN website. Uh, RAIN is an acronym for the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. It is the uh, largest anti-sexual violence organization in our country. And they have some very sad statistics on their website. And my intention here in sharing these, it's not to scare anyone, it's just to make us aware. So, RAIN estimates, based on what I presume to be the best data available, that one out of every six women in America has been the victim of either a completed rape or an attempted rape. One out of every six. And one out of every seven women in America has been the victim of a completed rape. 
Now, for comparison's sake, keep in mind that about one out of every 10 women is left-handed. That means chances are you probably know more women who have been raped than are left-handed. That is staggering. Now, that, that is terrible enough, but let's remember that rape is just one form of sexual crime. You know, granted, it's a particularly severe one, uh, probably the worst one, but there are other forms of sexual assault and harassment that can be very devastating and that can be sources of pain for years after they've occurred. And there's a great deal of evidence to suggest that the other five or six women in these stats who have not been the victim of either a completed or attempted rape have been the victim at some point of some other form of sexual misconduct. And um, I want to be clear, I don't mean to suggest that uh, sexual assault and violence uh, only takes the form of males perpetrating crimes against females. Uh, the available evidence indicates that that is the most common uh, form of sexual crime, but males sometimes perpetrate crimes against other males. And although it's not talked about very much, uh, females can and do sometimes perpetrate sexual crimes against uh, males or other females. Uh, that said, though, uh, there is a reason why this conversation is typically framed around uh, males perpetrating crimes against females. According to Rain, 90% uh, of rape victims are female. And uh, although one out of every seven women has been the victim of a completed rape, it appears that, uh, by comparison, one out of every 33 men in America has been the victim of a rape. Now, that's still a significant number. We should, we should recognize that. That's 3% of the population, of the male population. So uh, that is an issue that we should also be aware of and uh, be concerned about. But it, it is not as widespread as violence against women. Now, I've said that the pain that can result from sexual crimes is devastating. Well, Rain lists some of the common consequences of sexual crimes. And uh, these consequences, they can be experienced even years after the event or events have taken place, uh, especially if um, uh, therapy was never pursued. Um, uh, they include <clears throat> uh, depression, flashbacks, post-traumatic stress disorder, self-harm, sexually transmitted diseases, substance abuse, disassociation, eating disorders, sleep disorders, and even suicide. Now, that's, a, that's quite a list, right? You know, one of the reasons that sexual assault isn't always taken as seriously as it should be is because people, um, often men, presume that, well, the sexual attention, it wasn't really that unwanted. Uh, some people will think, well, she must have really wanted the attention because she was dressed a certain way, or she was dancing a certain way. But if you've ever thought that way, you need to look at that list of common consequences of crimes, you know, of sexual crimes. Do those look like the experiences of someone who, you know, actually didn't really not want the attention? You know, what we need to realize is that there are plenty of women out there who were dressed that way or who were dancing that way who really didn't want the sexual advances that they received. And they really didn't. And one look at those consequences should be a proof of that for us. 
right? You don't experience those things if you really wanted that attention. So <clears throat> this is an enormous problem. Uh, sexual crimes are very common, and they have devastating consequences. Now, as I've reflected on the Me Too movement over the last couple months, one of the things I've noticed is that this movement indirectly affirms biblical wisdom in a couple ways. Um, I'm, I'm not saying it's intending to do this, but I think it does it without necessarily even realizing it. So if you're taking notes, these are the first two things I encourage you to write, write down. Uh, the first way that the Me Too movement indirectly affirms biblical wisdom is it reminds us of the reality of human sin and brokenness. It reminds us of the reality of human sin and brokenness. Hopefully you remember that in our last couple weeks in our Genesis series, we talked about how one of the themes in Genesis and throughout the whole Bible, really, is that humanity is just stubbornly dysfunctional. Um, even after the massive judgment of the flood, the first thing that we see from Noah's family is evidence of dysfunction and pretty radical dysfunction. And throughout scriptures, this is a reoccurring theme that uh, even the heroes of the faith are sinners uh, because every person is a sinner. Uh, every person has an inclination towards evil. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond, beyond cure. Who can understand it? And Romans 3.23 reminds us, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, let me be very clear here. I am not saying that our inherent inclinations towards sin in some way justify or excuse this sexual misconduct. Okay? I don't mean to say that at all. But what I'm saying is that the Me Too movement reminds us that evil behavior is pervasive. Okay? You know, even in our educated, progressive uh, Western society, sexual violence is a common thing. And so is mistreatment of women. And not only that, but it's common among many people who in public would claim to stand against that sort of thing. You know, some of the celebrities and politicians who uh, have had their crimes exposed over the last couple months haven't just had their crimes exposed, but their hypocrisy exposed. And so the Me Too movement forces us to confront one of the same truths that the Bible teaches, which is that humanity is sinful and broken. And that brokenness runs deep. You know, people don't always do what they say. People don't always abide by the values that they claim to promote. So that's number one. But the second way that this movement indirectly affirms biblical wisdom is it reminds us of the significance of sexual activity. It reminds us of the significance of sexual activity. You know, if you were here this summer, I talked about this in our Proverbs series, but I think it bears repeating today. Okay, the biblical perspective on sex is that sex is a powerful, significant thing. Because scripture teaches that sex is supposed to be a sign of lifelong covenant relationship. In other words, okay, the God-intended context for sexual activity is a relationship of lifelong faithfulness. Till death do us part faithfulness. 
You know, sex is not just a fun thing to do. Uh, it's, it's not just a, a biological imperative. It is those things. But in God's view, it is more than that. It is supposed to be a sign and symbol of lifelong covenant. And this is something that's clear from the first time that sex is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, we talked about this not too long ago in our Genesis series, but uh, the first time, Genesis 2, verse 24. God says these words, or the Scripture says these words right after uh, Eve is created. The first woman is created. And the text says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, of course, the word sex isn't used there, uh, but it is referred to through those words, one flesh. That is, the, um, that is the connotation there. First mention of sex in the Bible. And what this is saying, what, what's clear here, is that sex, the one flesh relationship, is supposed to be synonymous with lifelong union and with the creation of a new household. Right? A man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Um, that word that gets translated as be united there, if you look that up in a Hebrew to English dictionary, it's, it's intense. It says to cling, stick, stay close, cleave, keep close, stick to, stick with, follow closely, join to. You see, the one flesh relationship is supposed to be one of fierce loyalty and commitment, right? A lifelong covenant relationship. Now, in our culture, we have separated sexual activity from lifelong covenant commitment. Uh, we, we don't seem to think that those two things belong together anymore. We've tried to live as if sexual activity doesn't need to have anything to do with covenant relationship. And in doing that, we have cheapened it. And um, we tried to act like it's not that big of, of a deal. But the pain that the Me Too movement reveals is undeniable evidence of the power and significance of sexual activity. You know, we as a society, we might try to cheapen sex. We, we might try to act as if it doesn't need to have any connection to lifelong faithfulness. We might try to say it's just a fun thing to do. It's just our biological imperative. But the pain that the misuse of sex causes, that is evidence that sex is far more powerful and far more significant than our culture gives it credit for. It's not meant to be something that's just taken lightly. Now you might say, okay, well hold on, hold on here. I wouldn't go that far. You know, the reason for all this pain, it's not really because sexual activity is so significant. It's not because it's supposed to be a symbol of lifelong faithfulness. The reason for all the pain is because of the lack of consent. Right? That's the reason for the pain. Now, hear me out here. Okay? Consent is hugely important. It's hugely important. And consent can make all the difference in the world between whether a sexual act is traumatic or not. Okay? So I would, never, I would never deny that. But this is what we have to realize. The reason consent is so important is because of the significance of what is being consented to. Uh, I used this analogy back in the summer, and I'll use it again. You know, if two people are out having lunch together, and one of them takes some fries off the other one's plate without asking permission, that's a violation of consent, right? That was not consented to. But is that event going to be traumatic for the person who had their fries eaten? 
Is that person going to suffer anything like the list of consequences that I put up just a little while ago? Is there going to be any danger of experiencing PTSD or anything like that? No, of course not. You know, they might get annoyed, but they're not going to experience anything like that. Why? Because with or without consent, fries are not that big of a deal. Right? But sex is significant. Sex is a big deal, and that's why consent is so important. And so what has been happening with the Me Too movement is a reminder of this inescapable reality uh, that sex is powerful and significant. And that makes sense if God really did design it to be an expression of lifelong covenant relationship. Right? If that's the way that sex is supposed to function, then it's no wonder that forcing it upon somebody in any form is traumatic. You should never force a symbol of lifelong faithfulness on somebody without their consent. That's a, that's a crazy violation of God's design, especially when you have zero intention of being faithful to them. And it's no wonder that when that happens, it causes such pain. Because when it does, some fundamental aspect of reality, of the way God intended things to be, has been violated. So, for those two reasons, I see in this movement an affirmation of biblical truth. Uh, an indirect affirmation, but an affirmation nonetheless. And I am very hopeful, despite being fully aware of our sinful human uh, brokenness uh, and, and inherent inclinations towards sin, that this movement will have a positive effect on our society and will help to reduce the amount of sexual misconduct. Uh, we should all be hoping and praying for that. All right, so let's ask the question, how should the church be responding to what's happening here? Well, that is a huge, a huge question. It is, it's really hard to know where to even start. But two things come to my mind, first and foremost. If you're taking notes, there's spots on your outline for this. Number one, first thing we need to do, we have to listen and grieve with those who have been hurt. We have to listen and grieve with those who have been hurt. You know, a lot of people have been hurting. And because of this movement, more people than ever are coming out and they're sharing their stories. And, you know, some of us might wonder, especially those of us who haven't experienced any sexual assault or harassment, we might be skeptical. And we might be thinking, why are they coming out now? You know, why didn't they talk about it earlier? You know, they're just trying to get attention. Well, what we need to realize is that there are a lot of reasons that people don't talk about this sort of thing. You know, one is because people are afraid that they won't be believed if they talk about it. But another is because you know, they don't want everybody to know. You know, people can be worried that if they, if they, if they say what's happened to them, that people are going to look at them and as somebody always, you know, think of them as someone who has been violated, right? People can feel shame about it even though they weren't the ones responsible. So people end up carrying pain for a long time without ever speaking aloud what happened to them. Um, but right now, people who have been carrying pain for a long time are finally giving voice to that pain. And we in the church, we need to be willing to hear that pain, to share in it, and to support those who are hurting. That should be our first priority. Okay? Now, number two priority, this is a broad category. We have to consider how we might be contributing to the problem. You know, I wish that I could say 
that churches are safe havens from sexual harassment and assault. You know, I wish I could say that every church is a safe space in this world of chaos. Every church is a safe space where everyone honors the fact that sexual activity is supposed to be limited to this context of lifelong covenant faithfulness, just as God intended, where everybody respects consent. Man, do I wish I could say that. But the reality is that the sinfulness and brokenness of humanity shows up in our churches too. You know, the reality is that across this country, uh, there are pastors and priests and youth leaders who have abused their power for sexual gratification. You know, the reality is that there are people who go to church every Sunday who are perpetrators of sexual crimes, not just in the past, but in the present. And I am not pointing the finger at anybody here in church today, but I'm just saying at large, that is the reality. If we look throughout the country and throughout the world. And one of the things that is so sad is that there seems to have been a lot of cases where people in churches who are in leadership who have been found guilty of sexual misconduct in some way, and they've been protected rather than held accountable. As I'm sure most of us are aware, it's come to light that this happened frequently in the Catholic Church for a long time. Many priests were found guilty of abuse, they were accused of abuse, and, and what happened? They were just moved to another parish where they could have another opportunity to cause harm, which they usually did. And it's easy to pick on the Catholic Church because they're the ones who have been in the news about this the most. But there are plenty of examples of similar things happening in Protestant and non-denominational churches as well. So we have to ask ourselves, what can we do to not contribute to the problem? What can we do to not contribute to the problem? And again, this is a huge topic, but I have a, a, a list of five suggestions of some things that we can do. Incomplete list, but it's a starting point. One, we need to continue to proclaim and live out God's wisdom regarding sexual activity. Which, as I've already said this morning, is that sex is a powerful and significant thing, and it's intended for lifelong covenant relationship. Now, we need to hold to that teaching, however unfashionable it may be, and to the best of our ability, with God's help, we need to live it out. Number two, we need to remind ourselves of these basic principles. And this is my own way of putting it. I'm sure people have put it in other ways as well. But these basic principles, write them down, commit them to memory. I am not entitled to touch anyone, nor am I entitled to anyone's romantic attention. And then, correspondingly, I am not obligated to let anyone touch me nor am I obligated to give anyone my romantic attention. It seems to me that this should be, this should be obvious, but it's not always. And it's something that we need to keep in mind. Now, when I say romantic attention here, you know, that could mean several things. But it could mean something as, as simple as you know, asking somebody out on a date. Uh, now, to be clear, being romantically interested in somebody, asking them out on a date, that is not sexual harassment, that is not wrong, that is not sinful. But if you don't take no for an answer, 
well, that's wrong. And that can become a form of, of harassment. Um, <laughs> you know, you have to imagine if you're the person who's interested, what it might be like for the person who's not interested if every time they come to work or to school or to church, they know that you're going to be pursuing them in some way. That can lead to a lot of stress for a person. Uh, so we have to respect the fact that if somebody says no, it's a no, right? They're not obligated to give us attention. Um, they don't owe us that. Number three, if we are parents, we need to teach our kids about these things. Uh, this is one of the best preventative things that I think we can do. We need to teach our kids about those things that, that I just said in number two. Um, we need to let our kids know that there are areas of their body that other people should not touch. But I want to include a caution here, okay? Yet we have to be very careful when we speak to our kids, if we're parents, about this, uh, that we don't give them the impression that if they are ever touched, then they can't talk to us about it because we'll be angry at them. Right? It's a fine line to walk, but you want to encourage your kids to recognize they should refuse if anyone tries to touch them in certain places. But at the same time, if that ever happens to you, you have to come and tell us. We won't be angry at you. We love you. you know? Kids have to know that as well. Number four. We need to take any allegations of sexual misconduct seriously. Now, you might say, well, what about false allegations? All right, well, let's talk about that. Uh, it is true that sometimes false allegations are made. That is true. There's actually an example of that in Scripture. Now, you might be familiar with the story of Joseph, which is in the book of Genesis. We didn't get that far in the book of Genesis, but it's a, it's a great story. Uh, Joseph is an Israelite who has been taken into the home of an Egyptian master, and the wife of the Egyptian master takes a liking to him. And uh, she uh, tries to get him to come to bed with her. And Joseph refuses multiple times. Actually, Joseph is a great example of what someone should do in that situation. He just runs every time. Uh, but the Egyptian's wife is so upset that her advances have been denied that she accuses Joseph of trying to rape her. And that gets Joseph in trouble. So, you know, I don't want to deny that this is a reality, that this can happen, that false allegations sometimes occur. And it's also true that false allegations can destroy a person's life. Okay? They can totally destroy a reputation. But we need to recognize that the reality is that far more people get away with sexual misconduct than are falsely accused. To be falsely accused, that is a problem. We should be aware of that. But it, people getting away with it is a much, much bigger problem. Uh, in fact, according to Rain, 99.4% of rapists never do jail time. 99.4%. Now, that's for a variety of reasons that they don't end up doing jail time. Uh, but not taking allegations seriously is certainly one of those reasons. So our default position should always be to take allegations of sexual misconduct seriously. I'm not saying we should blindly believe every accusation, but we should take every accusation seriously. And if an accusation ever arises in the church, 
uh, church leaders should take that seriously and investigate. All right, one more. We should not let our value of grace lead us to enable perpetrators to harm more people. You know, sadly, this is something that happens sometimes in churches. You know, someone is found to be guilty of of sexual misconduct, maybe a leader, and then they're forgiven and they're allowed to remain in that position because the church says, well, we value grace. You know, we value forgiveness. Well, we should value grace and forgiveness. Um, And, you know, each, each situation should be handled with the wisdom unique to that particular situation. But leaving someone in power who has abused it, that's not grace at all. Uh, to the person who was hurt by them. And it's definitely not grace for anyone else in the future who might be hurt by a repeat offense. So we have to find ways to show grace that don't perpetuate the problem. Grace is important. Forgiveness is important. But we have to do what we can to make sure that the same problem doesn't keep repeating itself. All right, so those are... The five suggestions, again, an incomplete, le- an incomplete list, uh, but it is a starting point for how we as the church can keep from contributing to this problem. Now, what I want to do as we finish up today is I want to speak a few words directly uh, to two groups of people. And they are the two groups of people who would, like, who would be likely to be the most uncomfortable with this message. So the first group I'm thinking of are any of us who feel like we could legitimately say, me too. That's the first group. And the second group I'm thinking of are any of us who know or suspect that we could be responsible for someone saying, me too. Now, to the first group, I want to say this. It is a simple message, but I pray that it sinks in. Uh, And it is this. I'm sorry for what has happened to you. You have every reason to be upset. And you should not blame yourself for what happened. And whatever happened, it's important for you to remember that it does not define you. You are not alone in your experience. You're not even unusual. And nothing about what has happened changes God's love for you and his faithfulness to you. Now, to the second group. Uh, And before I say this, I want us to recognize that a lot more of us may be in the second group than we would think. You know, keep in mind, when we're talking about sexual misconduct, you know, we're not just talking about rape. Uh, We're talking about uh, grabbing people without their consent, forcibly kissing people without their consent, We're talking about speaking to people in sexual ways that make them feel uncomfortable or objectified. We're talking about treating people as if they're obligated to give us romantic or sexual attention. You know, all of those things, those all qualify as sexual misconduct. And I have to imagine that as this Me Too movement has picked up steam, there have been many, many people some of them Christians, many of them Christians probably, who have been reminded of things that they've done. Maybe things that they haven't thought about in a while. And that's been hard. And as they've been reminded of those things, they have either 
try to defend those actions to themselves. Or they have felt a painful sense of guilt. And if you find yourself in that category, the first thing I would encourage you to do is to not defend your actions to yourself. So, you know, don't say, ah, you know, boys are boys. You know, don't say, I was young, I didn't know any better. Don't say, I could have done worse, but I didn't. Just own it, you know? If you, if you sexually assaulted or harassed in some way, just admit it to yourself. Don't defend it, just own it. And yeah, when you do that, when you lower those defenses, you may find this sudden rush of guilt come upon you. But that's okay, let it in, okay? Let it come. And as those feelings come, okay, as you feel the weight of that sin, Remember these words from 1 John 1, 8 through 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If you are in that second group, your first step to freedom is confession. Okay, it's admitting before God that you have done wrong. And honestly, I recommend not only confessing to God, but to confessing to a, a, a trusted Christian friend as well. Um, if you want to confess to me, I will be in my office this week, you know, make an appointment with me. It's confidential. Um, you know, you can email me and set up an appointment. But there's something about confession both to God and to someone else that you can trust that is healing, okay? So we need to confess, and God promises that when we confess, there's forgiveness available to us from him. However, this is important. I want us to recognize that confession doesn't necessarily mean that we are relieved of any consequences from our actions, that's very important. In fact, if you think you should be able to confess and then not face any consequences from your actions, I don't think you've really confessed. Okay, because confession is not just words. It's not just saying, oh yeah, that was wrong. Confession is an attitude of the heart that believes you really did something wrong. And if you have that, it, along with that also comes an attitude of, I am willing to accept the consequences of my confession because I recognize that it's justified. You see what I mean? For example, if you have a history of abusing your wife and you confess that you've been abusive, you haven't really confessed in your heart if then you get really angry at her when she leaves. If you think you're entitled to have her stick with you. Real confession recognizes that there are consequences to your actions. But the good news is that when we confess, when we recognize our sin and when we are willing to accept the consequences, God is ready and willing to forgive us. He will not hold that against us in our relationship with him. And he will not hold it against us in eternity. So if you're in that second group, I encourage you to confess. 
And there's one other thing that I encourage you to do. I encourage you to pray about doing. It's a pretty radical step. I encourage you to apologize to whoever you wronged. Now, I encourage you to do it in a very particular way because there's a good chance that if you wronged somebody through sexual misconduct, they don't want to talk to you. In fact, um, if you try to show up on their doorstep, that may re-traumatize you or re-traumatize them. Um, so what I recommend is apologizing from a distance. Uh, if they have a public email or public mailing address, uh, you, you find it and you write a very carefully worded letter or email. And in that email or letter, uh, you, you don't make excuses. You don't defend yourself. You just say, you know, I've realized this is what I did. It was wrong, and I'm sorry. You know, and if I could go back and change it, I would. I wish I could. And I also recommend you saying in that letter or email, um, I don't ever intend on trying to contact you again. <laughs> Just know that. You know, don't worry about that. <laughs> um, you want to make it clear that you have no ulterior motive. You're not trying to reestablish a relationship. You're not trying to make them think you're a great person. Uh, you're not trying to manipulate them in some way. Your only motivation is to let them know that you are genuinely, sincerely sorry. Um, and, uh, you know, if you want to include in that letter that it is your faith in Christ that has led you to this place of honesty and confession, then by all means do that. But uh, your top priority should just be to say that you are sorry. And I encourage you to do that um, because for you, there is freedom in that. And for the person who is wronged, um, they may find a new experience of freedom uh, when they receive that apology. So it's a radical thing to do, and I'm not assuming that anyone in here must do that, but I'm saying you know. If, if the Spirit is speaking to you and telling you this is something you need to do, um, this could be one of the most transformative things you do in your life, both for yourself and for somebody else. So I encourage you to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is such a, a heavy topic. Uh, and Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide our thinking about it. Lord, I pray that where there needs to be repentance, there would be repentance. And Lord, I thank you that when we repent, you stand there ready and willing to receive us. Lord, I thank you that when we confess our sin and turn to you, uh, you embrace us. I thank you that you, you call us towards uh, greater, greater wholeness uh, and to greater peace with ourselves and with our neighbors. And I pray, Lord, that we would honor you with how we handle our sexuality. I pray, Lord, that we would honor each other with how we handle our sexuality. And I pray, Lord, that the church would be a safe haven, a place where we respect and honor one another in all ways. In Jesus' name, amen.